Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, January 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, lawmakers are looking to strengthen the state's retirement system, which impacts around 10 percent of the population. Then plaintiffs seeking to block the formation of a separate criminal court in Hines County say they're disappointed by a federal court's ruling. Plus, some lawmakers want to cut income tax this year, but experts warn it could hurt low-income Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Ensuring the financial future of Mississippi's Public Employment Retirement System, or PERS, is said to be one of the defining issues of the 2024 legislative session. The PERS board voted last year to change policies that would allow for a 5% increase in contributions by employers. But the legislature has largely been opposed to that decision and put an increase on hold. Ray Higgins is the executive director of PERS. He tells our Will Stribling the system needs some kind of outside assistance to maintain a system that is close to paying out more than it brings in. Of course, the board acted in, a, in accordance with state law where we are to fulfill our fiduciary duty, acting in the best interest of, of the system, and the, the vote was to raise the employer contribution rate consistent with the recommendation of the actuary. And since that time, we voted to phase in that rate. So as it stands now, based on the recommendation of, of the actuary, uh, the board has voted to increase the employer contribution rate up to 22.4%, but it is being phased in at 2% per fiscal year until it reaches that amount. So starting in July, it will increase by 2% up to 19.4%. Uh, what can you tell me about what y'all are going to um, present lawmakers with this year? Because I know that... Uh, the new speaker has, has said that the, the legislature does plan on injecting some cash into the first system. Um, what have those conversations looked like so far? Like, what is what is that going to going to come with on y'all's end? Well, we certainly uh, we we very much appreciate the consideration of additional funding or a cash infusion or some uh, other. Uh, appropriations, and we are respectfully making that request. But also we're putting forward a legislative package with several proposals that largely affect new or potentially would affect new employees, Uh, the most notable being a proposed Tier 5. And by Tier 5, I mean a different benefit structure for employees to be hired in the future. And and that's part of our legislative package that we'll be putting forward. Uh, And the proposed 
change for the new Tier 5 is very similar to current PERS with the exception of uh, four-year vesting instead of eight, a lower member contribution rate, and then also no guaranteed COLA or cost of living adjustment, but rather the possibility of a COLA, but it would be tied to inflation, capped at 3%, and also based on funding availability. So very similar to current PERS with some minor changes, but we think that would be a good step forward. We think that would uh, help better sustain PERS long-term and also provide some much-needed flexibility uh, to the next generation of decision-makers should we encounter economic or other adversity. So a, a problem with the system right now is just the increase of the ratio of retirees to current employees. You know, between 2010-2020, ratio of active employees to retired employees decreased by a third, and that problem is if I understand correctly, it's only going to snowball over time. What are y'all thinking about about that and what challenges it presents for the PERS long term? Well, you, you certainly cite some, that, that ratio has been uh, a, a challenge. Um, the number of actives has declined over the last 10 years. Approximately the number of actives has uh, decreased by around 10%, whereas the number of retirees has increased by around 27%, and retirees are living longer. So you do cite one of the challenges for the system. Uh, from our standpoint, we do want to point out, and one of the things we hope to emphasize more this legislative session is that any initiatives that decrease the number or incentivize a fewer number of active members can potentially have a negative effect on the system. So we certainly want to point out that any of those initiatives, regardless of merit, may have a, a cost to the system. So you you brought up an important uh, ratio, and that is something we've observed. Uh, and then I want to go through a few uh, comments that Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman made uh, on Monday during the Dennis Capital Forum uh, when, when asked about PERS. And he said that, um, that it's going to be the major issue this year. That's the major issue because it will end up determining whether or not we fully fund MAEP, build more bridges and roads, more educators paid, et cetera. And then he also said, we went from last year being 93% funded in 2047 to this year 46%. So what happened? You know, one of those is tremendously wrong. And so were we misled? Did they miscalculate? Can you explain to me what he's talking about there, about that huge shift in the projection as far as the, the funding through through 2047? Sure. Well, I don't want to speak um, too much on the lieutenant governor's remarks since I wasn't there to hear him in person and everything. Uh, but I, I will say I, I appreciate his interest in PERS, appreciate his focus on PERS. I look forward to working with him and all legislative leadership. To comment on a few things you mentioned there, one thing is certainly true that PERS is very important. It is very important and will be very important, I think, to um, this session. Uh, and, I, again, I appreciate the, the focus on that. Um, I'll also take this opportunity to just point out how important PERS is, not only to our membership, uh, but also to the state as a whole. I mean, we touch uh, approximately 10% of the population directly with our total PERS membership. We're also very important economically, uh, generating over $3 billion in economic activity as we pay out those $3 billion in benefit payments to every county throughout the state. And of that $3 billion, around 92% remains in the state of Mississippi, generating uh, a large amount of, of state and local tax revenue. So PERS is, is very important not only to our membership but to the to the state. And I, I agree with uh, Governor Hoseman that it is a very important issue. As to the comments about the uh, funded ratios you're referring to, again, without having uh, spoken with him personally or, or being there, I'm not sure. But it sounds like what he may be referring to is the projected uh, funded ratios in the past and past reports. And they both were, 
were correct at the time, of course, but each year we have, when, when times change and we have new reports, they're updated each year. Um, so one of our metrics in our funding policy is the projected funded ratio in 2047. And again, it's updated each year, and it changes from year to year based on investment experience, based on actuarial experience, based on mortality changes, and other things that affect the system. So again, without being there, it's hard to comment, but I assume that is probably what he's referring to because um, it does change from year to year. However, the actuarial funded ratio, the, the, the big picture in the story of PERS has remained constant for quite some time now. Uh, PERS is a great system, but we're an accumulation of everything that's happened since we were created roughly 70 years ago. And from an actuarial standpoint, standpoint referring to the funded ratio, we've been around 61% for the last several years. Uh, now, the, the latest publication changes to 56%, which is largely due to the assumption change. But I would say for the last five, six, maybe even ten years, that funded ratio reflected in each year's annual actuarial valuation um, has been in that upper 50s and low 60s, somewhere around 60 or 61 percent for quite some time. But, again, I appreciate the lieutenant governor's focus on that. He is right. It's a very important issue, and we look forward to working with him. Ray Higgins is the executive director of the Public Employees Retirement System of Mississippi. Coming up, plaintiffs seeking to block the formation of a separate criminal court in Hines County say they're disappointed by a federal ruling. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio. Whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Natchez, Jackson, Tupelo, Cleveland. However you want. Radio, smart speaker, smartphone app. MPB Think Radio. Listen to MPB Think Radio at 10 on weekday mornings for shows about your legal rights, modern technology, car repair, and other topics of interest. Programs made by Mississippians for Mississippians on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new criminal court within Hines County has been delayed by appeal since House Bill 1020 was signed into law last year. Supporters say it would help alleviate a backlog of court cases in Jackson, but opponents say it's undemocratic. Nearly all courts in Mississippi have judges that are elected by their citizens, but this inferior court would be appointed, well, the judges would be appointed by the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court. Ann Saunders is one of the original plaintiffs in the suit. She was joined by fellow Jackson resident Dorothy Triplett. The women tell our Mike McEwen they have concerns about what the ruling could mean for residents of the capital city. The main concern had to do with what I perceive as an injustice being done on a lot of different fronts. It was suggested that the House leader who brought forth the bill was doing it in behalf of Jackson and the community, and yet there were no meetings, there was no discussion with the community at all. And so it felt very paternalistic and very um, unfair. Once you looked closer at the bill and saw what it was doing, especially since the initial CCID was you know, developed to help, help, help beautify Jackson, <laughs> you know, not to um, create a, a secondary p- 
police force, not to create a a court. (laughs) So there were a lot of aspects to it that just felt very unfair. And the deeper my understanding of it, the more I began to realize that my rights were being violated. And uh, I guess the same question for you. Well, and my reasons are similar, but I'll extend it a little bit beyond that. When Anne asked me if I would be willing to to do it, I immediately said yes, because I think anything that is eroding our voters' rights, we have to say no to. The Jackson delegation was not even informed or asked for their input, and yet it was only going to be applicable to Jackson. The two legislators that proposed the bill were from northern and on the coast and was brought out with no previous discussion or consideration at all. And there are always questions when it only applies to a certain group of people and when another group of people are proposing it. It's pretty obvious to me why that happened. And I don't know if it's obvious to other people, but it still is eroding our voting rights, and it's unconstitutional. As I understand it, you're from Northwest Jackson, you're from Belhaven. Are you both Jackson residents, you know, like lifetime Jackson residents? No, neither of us are. I've been in my current house since the early 90s. So long-time residents? Right, right. And long-time Mississippian, but only... In Jackson, well, I moved to Jackson in 80, I think. So the reason I ask is just to ask, you know, the relation between the 1020 bill is that Jackson has this enormous crime issue and it's violent. You know, as residents of Jackson for at least a couple of decades, you know, what do you understand, I guess, just crime and the level of violence to, to be in Jackson and... As you understand that problem, how do you think this will address it, if at all? Well, um, so many things went through my mind, because that's a multifaceted question. One of the things that I think it's important to recognize is, yes, I'm a longtime resident of Jackson as well. I had family, both sides of my family, who came from Mississippi, not from Jackson, per se. And um, so we've, we've been longtime residents in the same home since then. Certainly, I've seen an increase in crime, mostly since Katrina, um, when we had a large influx of people who have been displaced by by Katrina. But I also recognize that, you know, what were we doing really to try and help those individuals? Also, if we look at what's going on in the rest of the state in terms of crime, that is never brought up. Because Jackson is not necessarily the, the crime center of Mississippi, and it is that, although that's what it is purported to be. Two things that have been um, misrepresented in large part by people who are supposed to represent the truth because they're trying to fashion laws that are bene- benefiting us, but they're not fashioning them based, based on honesty. They're fashioning them based on misrepresentation of accurate information. With your understanding of that and your understanding of the CCID and Capitol Police's role, how do you think that will actually address it? It's proposed as, you know, a solution to an issue. How do you feel about that solution as someone who understands the issue? 
I think I think um, the uh, I, th- I think the the issue with regards to crime really we're not looking at what is creating the crime, and that's the issue. <laughs> we're not looking at the poverty, the unemployment, and where that is is taking place. We're not looking at adequate education. You know, I think the things that are driving uh, uh, crime need to be looked at more as opposed to thinking that the only way that you can address crime is through um, policing. Are either of you at all surprised that community input wasn't gathered or even taken into consideration? You know, just your understanding of how things work here, does that surprise you? I, I have to say I was sort of surprised. You know, um, because it never occurred to me that someone from outside of my community could bring up a bill that was for my community in spite of the fact that the representatives who represent my community and their outright rejection of that proposed bill was not not, uh, considered. That surprised me. Local judges are opposed to it as well. And if the problem is, as they tried to say, that, oh, there's a backlog of cases, well then, get another, have another municipal court, have another court that the people will elect the judges. It doesn't have to be done the way this was done. This was so openly wrong. As I understand it, the Fifth Circuit Court has ruled against two injunctions to delay the implementation of the law. So July of this year, 2024, is when both the CCID and the new court will go into effect. Just how, how do both of you feel now? You really kick-started the process, at least formally, in appealing this law. How do you feel now about where it stands and the future of it? Well, I have no regrets about what we did. Um, I think it, it drew attention to um, the situation, and I think we were able to prevail in two instances. That's with regards to, one, making sure that it was an inferior court that was created, and um, the the Supreme Court justice did not have the right to appoint circuit court judges over us. And then the other aspect of it had to do with their... Um, uh, uh, the, the right of appeal that exists now um, that did not exist before. So if someone is found um, uh, guilty within the CCID court, they do have the right of appeal, although they may end up having to spend time waiting for that appeal in a state penitentiary. But if they can't get a public defender, but but at least they do have the right of appeal, and that right of appeal will be before a circuit court judge that is elected by the people. So that's, that's the good thing, and it's unfortunate that um, the law still stands, and I would love to see it um, repealed, or, it, you know, it may be that there are ways to um, amend it so that it uh, does represent things that um, would... Um, be uh, acceptable to the people that it uh, is going to impact. Ann Saunders and Dorothy Triplett, both of Jackson, were plaintiffs in a case challenging a law that would create a state-run court system within Hines County. Next, some lawmakers want to cut income tax this year, but experts warn it would hurt low-income Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
humor, stories, news, music. Our weekend lineup has it all. Tune in to enjoy the relaxed sound of the weekends on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Many state lawmakers want to cut taxes, and Governor Tate Reeves is renewing his call this year to eliminate the income tax. But some policy analysts say cutting income tax would do more harm than good for Mississippi. Kyra Roby is the policy director for One Voice, a local nonprofit working on civic engagement, policy, and leadership development. Her organization, along with the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, studied the issue. They found what ending the income tax means for the state and Mississippians. Mississippi is one of several states that places a larger share, a larger burden of collecting taxes on individuals with the very least. And so Mississippi um, collects more in um, taxes or a larger share of taxes from individuals at our lowest income levels than we do on individuals at our greatest income levels. And so that is a, a problem with our tax code that we, in a state that um, already has the highest poverty rate in the nation, that we're asking so much from people who have the least. Governor Tate Reese is talking about wanting to eliminate the income tax. What would that mean for Mississippians across the board? So that would just mean that we would give another tax break to the wealthiest and place an even greater share of the burden of collecting taxes on the state's lower income individuals. And that is because the state's individual income tax is the only tax in Mississippi that actually collects more from wealthier individuals. And so if we were to eliminate that or even reduce it further, we would be giving another tax break to wealthy Mississippians and, again, placing an even larger share of, um, of the or tax burden on lower-income individual, lower individuals, people who have the least. In addition to that, um, eliminating the state individual income tax will also continue to cut revenue from the state um, from the last tax cut that the state lawmakers enacted in 2022, that tax cut um, upon its full implementation will take $535 million away from the state budget annually. And that's money to pay for services that we all want and need, like public schools, um, like infrastructure, roads and bridges, like health care. And so the effect of that tax is not just on individuals, which, again, we really care about. It's also on the state overall and on services that help improve the the lives of the very individuals that we're trying to help and that our tax burden, uh, tax code is hurting right now. And so this is referred to as a regressive tax system? Yes, ma'am. Any tax system that um, takes more money or a larger share of income from lower and middle income individuals than wealthier individuals means that it is a regressive tax system. Progressive tax systems, on the other hand, taxes wealth and takes a, a fairer share of the burden 
um, or places a fairer share on the burden for wealthy individuals to make sure that they pay their fair share and that the entire tax burden or a large majority of it is in place on individuals who have the least. Now, in looking at your release, your press release, it says nationally tax systems in 44 states exacerbate inequality. So Mississippi is among the bulk of the states in the nation that tax this way. Yes, ma'am. And unfortunately, that is a harsh reality of of, um, different policies, um, tax policies across the state. one of the important things to realize about the state of Mississippi and why it's so important for us, again, is because we also have the highest poverty rate in the nation. And so if we're already taking a large share of income from people who have the least to um, um, to hold up our tax system and to support state tax revenue. We're doing that on the backs of people who literally have the least as we have the highest poverty rate in the nation. And so the income inequity that exists in Mississippi um, that's not totally dependent on the tax code, but that the tax code exasperates it, it makes those problems even worse. Kyra Roby is the policy director for One Voice. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.